Welcome to Hospitality Forward, a podcast where hospitality and travel professionals learn how to earn the media spotlight. My name is Hannah Lee. I am president of Hannah Lee Communications, an award-winning public relations agency in New York City. And I'm Michael Ann Stendig, a food and beverage writer and editor-in-chief at Hannah Lee Communications. As a PR professional myself and Michael as a journalist, we understand the power of media coverage and its impact on someone's career and business. So each week, we interview top journalists who share their insights and tips. In this episode, we chat with Aaron Goldfarb, a novelist, author, and journalist. He frequently writes about the spirits industry and drinking culture for Esquire, The New York Times, Punch, Vine Pear, and Whiskey Advocate. His two most recent books are Hacking Whiskey and Gather Around Cocktails. Also, stay tuned for our HLC Innovation Report at the end of this episode. Hi, Aaron. Great to see you. Good to see you guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. First of all, let's celebrate something here. You won the best cocktail and spirits writing award from the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation. Congratulations. That's thank huge. You, thank you. Well done. Yeah. Only award I've ever won in my life. So pretty happy <laughs> about that. Let's back up a little bit. You originally went to Syracuse University to become a filmmaker. What led you to write about spirits, cocktails, and beer? Well, you know, my, my career... And the last 20 years of my life has just been trying to find literally any job that people would pay me to do. So I wanted to be a filmmaker and a screenwriter, and I went to film school, and I spent, or you could say wasted, the first decade of my life writing screenplays and uh, living like a pauper, pretty much, because, of course, none of them were made into movies. Um, after about the first decade of living in uh, New York City after college, I started thinking this is ridiculous. I've written 17 screenplays. I think some of them are pretty good. I don't know. I haven't read them in a while. 17, uh, wow. <laughs> right, exactly. They'd made me almost no money. They'd turned into zero movies. And the only people on planet Earth that had ever read them were people like my roommates and maybe my mom, if she felt sorry for me. So I wanted to you know, a actually have a career where people would actually read the things I was writing. So uh, I wrote a novel on a whim after that, and it got published and did all right, made me a little money. And it, it was such a thrill that there was a, a product out there I'd written that people could actually uh, read. This was a lot better than screenplays sitting in my, my desk drawer. So I thought I would just kind of be a, a, a novelist, which also is not a very lucrative career. And right around that time, um, a friend of a friend at Esquire reached out to me and asked if I'd like to start writing for them. So I kind of started high up. I didn't really work my way up to a place like Esquire. Literally, the, the first journalism job I ever had was at Esquire. And I wrote a story on craft beer, which I was a fan of at the time, and I guess I still am. And I was I was very fortunate to to move to New York City right as a lot of cool things were happening. Uh, you know, I moved to New York in 2001. You know, the cocktail revolution is starting. I couldn't re I couldn't really afford $15 drinks, but luckily I had friends that would uh, bequeath them on me. Um, craft beer was booming or was about to boom. Uh, bourbon was again about to be hot. So 
I lived and drank my way through all these trends and all these new booms that were happening. And I just acquired the knowledge because I enjoyed drinking whiskey. I enjoyed drinking craft cocktails and whatnot. So by the time at the end of the aughts and the early 2010s, when I was getting hired to do journalism, the, the thing I naturally seemed to know quite a bit about was my hobby, uh, which was, was, was drinking. And um, unlike a lot of other journalistic pursuits, whether that be politics or whatnot, um, you know, when, you, when you're a drinks writer, it's, 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 a lot, it's a lot of fun. You get sent drinks, <laughs> you get to go out to lovely events with you guys and, and stuff like that. And less people, I imagine, yell at you and offer death threats than political journalists get, although some do come to drinks writers. But, you know, I, so I kind of accidentally fell backwards into this career and I uh, keep telling myself I'll get back to film films or novels or whatnot, but you know, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it and I'm, I'm stuck in it for better or worse. Good place to be stuck. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Love the story, how your hobby became your professions. Awesome. Speaking of Esquire, so um, you freelance for a lot of places like Punch, Fine Pair, Food and Wine, and many others. So can you tell our listeners who are their audiences and what type of topics do you specifically cover for each publications? Well, you know, each publication, and I try to write for a lot of them because if you think of an idea, it might be an idea that doesn't work for Esquire, the New York Times, but might work for Punch. Or if it doesn't work for Punch, it might work for Vinepair, if it doesn't work for Vinepair. So I, I hate to think of an idea and then have nowhere to put it. Luckily, I've built up the relationships and the places where I can kind of move down the chain. Oh, you didn't want it? Well, maybe this this person does. You know, after all, all this time, it's kind of a I just have kind of a natural instinct. Oh, that's a vine pair story. Oh, that's a punch story. And I'm not sure I could necessarily elucidate what that means. You know, something more mainstream might work at Esquire or the New York Times, of course. I, I just wrote a story on dusty hunting, which is searching for vintage spirits for the New York Times. Now, that story wouldn't have probably worked at a geekier place because all the readers already know about it. Whereas New York Times readers are not on the cutting edge when it comes to spirits. So you can write kind of a more mainstream story, a more mainstream wrap up of what's been happening over the last five to 10 years um, that you, you wouldn't, you know, sell to Whiskey Advocate or Bourbon Plus or something. So, you know, it, you build a knack for what, what did, what do these places want by, by reading what they, what they publish by kind of figuring out what people are, retweeting their articles and talking on Facebook about them. Um, it's, as I said, it's kind of a, a natural instinct I've built over all these years. And I'm not always right. I get plenty of my pitches turned down to all these places. So, you know, I always tell younger journalists, you know, keep honing in and figuring out what each place wants and come up with a lot of damn ideas because you're going to need them. Exactly, exactly. So um, do you have anything in the pipeline that our listeners can pitch you about? Well, I love pitches and, you know, both a good and bad thing about getting a little more successful in this field is now more people reach out and, and they have ideas. And a lot of the ideas are not very good, quite frankly. They say, you should write about this. And I think, well, what's the, what's the idea? That's not really an idea. That kind of sounds like you just want me to uh, write about you or your brand. But, you know, occasionally they come to me. That story in the New York Times was uh, a, a story that really did fall in my lap. A, a guy came to me and he said, I, I found Cecil B. DeMille's um, uh, uh, 
whiskey collection. And I asked another friend who's the writer who would be good at covering this. And the guy recommended me. So, you know, that was very fateful. And I guess just my years of work had had led to that all uh, uh, coming together and, and kind of being gifted a great, great story like that. So, you know, I always like to hear from from people what they think are good ideas and I'll make the judgment whether they are or not. I mean, even the ideas I have, I sometimes I think they're good and, and they lead nowhere. So, you know, you, you never really know. We were amazed by that story. I mean, finding the Cecil B. Mill booze collection, it's like unearthing Tutankhamun's tomb. Yeah. You know, it's like an archaeological discovery for booze lovers. That's exactly what what I thought of it. And when the guy told me about it, I said, yeah, I know that's a home run. I'm going to sell that story the second I, I send an email to whoever I'm going to send an email to. So my question to you is, have you become a dusty hunter yourself? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, and I do have a few dusty bottles on my shelves, is I was aware of dusty hunting, you know, since the early 2010s. And even then I said to myself, ah, the whole game's probably over by now. It's not worth my time. And it wasn't. If I if I put my head down and committed to finding vintage bottles back then, I would have done incredibly well. Um, but I didn't. So <laughs> other people have, have swooped in to, to get them all. But, you know, I didn't I don't know if I want to spend my life uh, 12 hours a Saturday driving to, to dusty liquor stores just to find old wild turkey. But God bless the people that do. And, and putting life and limb at risk sometimes. Yes, exactly, exactly, right. So what would you say it takes to really get a story in the Times versus some of the other outlets that uh, you pitch? For a drink story, you need to have something that's a little, I would say, well, okay, let me back up here. First of all, Robert Simonson has the cocktail stories on lockdown, so I'm not sure why you would ever try to outpitch him. He knows what is trendy both in New York and the world, and he knows the history of it too. So I would never even almost waste my time. You know, sometimes people come to me and they say, here's, we got this new cocktail trend. Why don't you pitch it to the New York Times? And I just say, here's Robert's email address. Why don't you go to him? Uh, sounds like a good story. And he, he would put you in a lot better place uh, than me. Um, for other booze stories, I think they need to be a little more slice of life, you know, because a lot of people reading them might not even drink whiskey. I did something I rarely do. And I read the comments on the New York Times article. And a lot of people said, you know, I don't drink. I don't know anything about whiskey. But this was such a compelling story. I still read the whole thing. So I think for a place like the New York Times or even Esquire, you need a story that non-connoisseurs, that non, you know, maybe even non-drinkers are, are going to enjoy. Um, you know, think about how many times you've read a story in the New York Times or the New Yorker or something about a a hiker or or a parachuter or someone who does something you would never do in your entire life, but you've been compelled because it's an interesting story and um, and a compelling story. So I think for the bigger publications, you need a story that stands alone without the reader having any prior knowledge of of any of this. So prior to the pandemic, you did a story on Eater on how some bars and restaurants are foregoing public relations. Yeah. And yeah. we thought, you know, that was fascinating. And quite frankly, one of the motivations of this podcast was to give bars and restaurants who don't have PR or maybe have a great story to tell, but don't know how, give them, you know, more access to reporters and editors like yourself. So from your point of view, what can individual restaurants and bars do 
to be included in your stories. To get your attention. Get your attention, assuming, you know, they don't have a PR firm representing them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tough, especially in a city like New York. I mean, let, let's ignore the pandemic for now. And, you know, how many, <laughs> if, if that's possible, how many restaurants and bars and you know, people making cocktails are there and everyone's trying to get a, a slice of the, the press pie. Um, for me, I like to know that I'm the only person who knows about something. So, you know, if, if you know, something cool's come out and, and they've sent a blast to 200 places, well, you know, I don't want to be the 20th person to write about the cool thing. Um, I'm not saying an exclusive necessary, but I think, you know, breaking down, like, here's the kind of stories Aaron likes. Why don't I pitch him either this portion of our business and say, this is a cool thing we do, or, you know, figure out something that will really help him. No, no writers ever said, uh, man, I'm just getting too many great ideas sent to me that are, you know, laid on a silver platter for me to pitch to, to my editors. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's certainly tough for, for bars and restaurants that don't have PR, but with Instagram and whatnot, it's very easy to reach people like me and say, you know, here's something cool we're doing. And it doesn't even have to be something formal. It can just be a picture. Here's a cool cocktail we're making. Here's a weird thing we're doing. The guy who pitched me on the DeMille thing, he just sent me, he didn't have a publicist. He's just a random dude. He sent me a picture. He said, I, I found the DeMille collection. If you're interested, let's talk on the phone. That's short, short and sweet. Sounds like a very easy. Yeah. So in addition to DMing you on Instagram, if you can tell us what are the top three do's and don'ts pitching you? I don't, I just don't like to be harassed, like to get like an email and I don't respond to that in an hour and I get a DM and I don't respond to that. And now I'm on fit. Like I've been cold called and texted and you got to ask yourself, like, am I getting too personal? You know, mm -hmm. is this, even if I can find this information, isn't this, is this a way I should be reaching out or should I just stick with email? You know, DM on Instagram is necessary and I have to do it sometimes myself. I sometimes have to reach out to people on Facebook because that's the only way I can figure it out for a story. And that's fine. But pick pick your lane for your one media and way you're going to reach the person. And, and just don't harass. You know, follow-ups are fine. We don't need like 40 follow-ups. You know, sometimes this, this, I can't even remember the brand. I'm pretty sure it was a vermouth, though. It became like a running joke. They, they were up to like 11 follow-ups. And I was like, is this person just seeing how many follow-ups they can get before? I'm like, enough. And I never, I never said that because I wanted to see like, will this just go on for the rest of time? And I think it eventually petered out. She must've got fired or moved on to another place or they lost the account or whatnot. But yeah, you know, I might miss a good email once or twice. After three, it's probably because I get a hundred plus emails a day and I just don't have time to respond to them all. And, and I used to have time to respond to them all and it feels impolite to not, but at a certain point I wouldn't be writing stories. I'd just be saying, no, thanks. That's not for me all day on email. And it is how it is. Not, not a good use of your time. Totally. Right. How about do's? What can they do? Well, I'm sure other writers have said this to you. I think Mr. Jaffe did as well, but personalizing the pitch, reading my last 10 stories, you know, reading my last 20 stories. Sometimes people will say, I have a gr idea for you. I think it's perfect for 
punch. And I say, when have you ever seen a story like that on punch? That's not perfect at all. Like, I don't know if they can't assess what a perfect story is, which might be true. It's not easy. Or if they're just trying to personalize it, by, but not trying to go, okay, he writes for these places. I'll just lie and say, I read his last 10 stories and, and here's what I'm, I'm going to do. So, you know, personalizing it, you know, as I said, laying something on a silver platter, here's, here's something we got. I think it'd be a good story for Vine Pair. And what do you think? Sometimes I say, well, that is good. You're right. <laughs> Let me see what I can do with it. Yeah, I think that doing homework is one of the most important thing for anyone Absolutely. who want to pitch you, anyone who want to pitch any media. So Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I, I know it's not an easy job, but instead of focusing on all 1,000 booze writers in New York, focus intensely on 5, 10, 20 and, you know, make those your go-tos and, you know, figure out what can what can get done with them. That's great tips. And, and I think, you know, the human connection is yeah. really so important part of this. I mean, journalists are not simply, you know, a name on a page, but they are personalities. They are people who have preferences, who have track records. And, uh, you know, that has to be uh, respected and embraced. Speaking about personalities, you, you did a great piece for Inside Hook on uh, the famed newspaper reporter, yeah. Jimmy Breslin, uh, starring in a beer ad, which was a great story. So how did that story come about? And how do you choose the specific personalities to celebrate, which which you do very well. Well, um, thank you. You might be the only person on planet Earth that seems to have read that story. Um, well, you know, I thought that story was going to be a bit of a hit. Maybe I, you know, kind of delved too far back in the past. I've always been a fan of uh, old newspaper men and especially Jimmy Breslin. I really enjoyed uh, the documentary on him and Pete Hamill that was on HBO called... Um, deadline artists. I mean, they, they were a phenomenon. They were legends. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, that that career doesn't really exist anymore where you shoot out of bed at 11 p.m. to go get uptown to, you know, see what happened at the Dakota. And two hours later, your story on John, uh, John Lennon dying's hit the presses. That just doesn't exist. So, you know, I, I kind of wish I, you know, could go back in time and live that life myself as a journalist. But uh, so I've always been a fan of Breslin and I've always kept it in the back of my head. Wow. How the hell did a newspaper guy get a, a mainstream beer commercial? That's just insane. You know, he wasn't good looking. He was very crass and slovenly. So luckily my, my editor at um, Inside Hook, Jason Diamond is a bit of an old soul like me. And we, I don't even know if it's a series yet, but previous to this, he'd pitched me on an idea for tracking down why Miles Davis had had starred in a Japanese commercial, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And I, I got the scoop on that. And I said, well, I like this. Why don't we continue it? I've always been interested in this Jimmy Breslin thing. And he said, go for it. Um, and I thought it was really a fascinating look at, you know, what newspaper men were doing in the 60s and 70s, how he ascended to fame, how beer advertising was changing, through uh, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, by the 80s, it was all Spuds McKenzie and the Swedish bikini team. And eventually by the 90s, the was up guys and whatnot. You know, you, you weren't going to see a guy like Jimmy Breslin or, or me, for that matter, in a Super Bowl ad for Budweiser. So, you know, I thought it was a fun thing to do. And apparently you're the only person on planet Earth that read it. <laughs> <laughs> but well, well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's let's circle back to uh, 2017. You did a big story on 
infinity bottles. Uh, you were one of the first people to write about them. And we noticed that uh, recently you wrote, you wrote about infinity cocktails in Punch yes. as kind of like the, the next iteration of this uh, cumulative trend, as it were. Yeah. So how do you find these really geeky things and make them interesting to a more mainstream audience? Yeah, well, I don't know if Punch is mainstream, obviously, but you, even the geekiest thing, you do have to explain to someone who's not spending all day on Reddit or Facebook <laughs> like I do reading this stuff. You know, it's tough. And I probably deliver stories that are a little too geeky at times, but my editors, you know, people like Chloe Frechette and whatnot, kind of have to translate to uh, a layman, essentially. Um, I find these stories by spending way too much time on the Internet, uh, which thankfully I like to do. <laughs> It was very it was a lot easier in 2017 because a lot of writers were not spending all their time on in, in private groups on Facebook or in weird Reddit subreddits. Um, you know, this year I've been spending a lot of time on Instagram and, and TikTok, which is has not been fun for a man of my age. Um, <laughs> but it's fun, though. It's so entertaining. <laughs> it is very addictive. That's true. So are you planning your next lip syncing video? <laughs> I haven't done it yet. Well, I wrote a story for VinePair on how flair bartending has migrated to to TikTok. So I spent a lot of time watching flair on um, on TikTok, and it was actually very fun and impressive and perfect for that platform. But yeah, you you kind of just have to go where the geeky people are talking about whatever they're interested in. Um, my friends that write in politics have to spend, you know time on these terrible, you know, 4chan and 8chan and, you know, QAnon message boards. Luckily, I don't have to do that. I just have to read what people are drinking and what kind of cocktails they're making and, and videos um, they're making. You know, it's a lot of, it's really just a time commitment, spending a ton of time. These stories are out there for anyone. And I'm always scared someone's going to find a, a cool story before me. And that's what keeps me wasting my days online. <laughs> reading lots of stuff that will never be stories. And a lot of times you just spend a lot of time on one of these platforms and then you start noticing, hey, why are people talking about this one thing all the time? Or what's this inside joke I don't get because I'm 41 years old and all these young guys are joking about it. And luckily I have lots of sources I can say, you know, essentially, why is everyone saying this? Or what does mm -hmm. that mean? Or what's this abbreviation everyone's using? Or what's the joke? and kind of have someone who's even geekier than me translate it to me. And then I can bring it to the mainstream and kind of <laughs> steal the story from, from them. So, so really, you, you go down rabbit holes so we don't have to. Exactly, exactly. So let's move on to writing a book. So you've written many books, and we are very happy to interview you for our Ask the Author series, and, and thank you for that. So um, with the holiday coming up, so we want to know why people should buy your book, Gather Around Cocktails. Well, you know, I feel like I do have one of the worst named books during a pandemic. It's, it's called Gather Around Cocktails. It's about gathering with your friends and, and drinking big punch bowls worth of cocktails. Uh, sales have not been very strong during the pandemic. I'm not going to lie. Uh, with the holiday season coming up, there are a lot of great cocktails, though. And if you don't have a lot of work, maybe you can polish off the punch bowl with, with your immediate family that's in your pod. Uh, the, the goal with the book was to think of 
official cocktails for every holiday or event throughout the year. There's really not, it's really kind of odd how only say Christmas with its eggnog or maybe the Kentucky Derby with the mint julep has an official cocktail. What's the official cocktail of Halloween? What's the official cocktail of Thanksgiving? What's the official cocktail of Hanukkah? Um, so I kind of tried to name one or at least provide one for each of those holidays. There's a cranberry punch for Thanksgiving, which is a bit obvious uh, for Hanukkah. There's a uh, Hanukkah highball made by uh, Heim Dowerman from here in New York who came up with this Hanukkah cocktail. Most of the cocktails are from professional bartenders, although I had to come up with a few myself. And then for the Christmas season, there's loads of wonderful eggnog and eggnog adjacent type cocktails and mold cocktails and mold adjacent cocktails. So a lot of fun things you can do and play around with when you're stuck in home all winter because of the pandemic. So what, what are some of your uh, secrets for making world-class eggnog? So I don't have any crazy like secret sauce for eggnog. My biggest belief in making a good eggnog is time. Um, even if it's just overnight, you make it before the party or before you want to drink it and just give it a day to, to combine and meld together. Uh, the way I make eggnog, it tastes perfectly good and fine immediately. It's a little too fluffy. It's a little too boozy, but something magical happens as it starts melding together either in the fridge or you can even put it in your, your cupboard because it, it's high enough proof that it will not go bad. And no one believes that, but my cabinet right now has four-year-old eggnog that oh, is wow. as beautiful and milky as it, it was the day uh, it was made. Weird things start happening when it ages. And, and I don't think four years is a great age for eggnog by any means. This is more an experiment, but two weeks is incredible. You know, it's it's getting to be Thanksgiving. If I was having a Christmas party by December 15th, which I won't be having this year, of course, I, I would consider making an eggnog right about now and, and aging it because by, by December 15th, it's going to be so silky. It's going to be just packed with with flavor. It's going to be delicious. And that's that's my my secret sauce. You're, you're making us thirsty. Yeah. So are you working on any new book? Because Robert Simonson revealed his new book on our podcast. So any scoop that we can get? <laughs> I missed Robert's podcast. Was it his uh, agave book or is it a new yes, new? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. He, he broke the news with us. Okay. I, I'll break the news with you then, I guess. I do have a new book that writing hasn't begun yet, but a deal has been signed. I am teaming up with Stephen uh, Grass, the owner and creator of Quaker City Mercantile in Philadelphia. He's the genius behind Hendrix Gin and Sailor Jerry Rum and uh, Tamworth Distilling and Art of the Age. Everything he touches turns to gold. So this is going to be a book on essentially how he comes up with all his crazy booze brands and gets them to market. It's not due on shelves till 2022, so we're going to have a long break. I'm going to be patient. We'll, yep. we'll save a spot on our on our shelf for sure. All right, we're ready. I'm excited to get started on it. And do you do you have a name for it? Uh, it was sold under the name Cultivating Creativity, but that's going to change to what? I do not know. Okay. All right. Thanks for breaking the news with us. I appreciate it's that. It's appreciated. <laughs> and now for the listener question segment of our podcast. Oh, Okay. Today's question comes from Ian McPherson, owner of the acclaimed Pander and oh, Sons and wow. several other bars in Edinburgh. Who's a genius. I know. I've interviewed him. Ian is wonderful, and he's curious to know, what will it take to place Scotch whiskey 
at the forefront of the cocktail repertoire? That's an interesting question. I'm sure the answer differs in Scotland um, compared to here. I'm guessing Scotch is a little more sacrosanct over where he works, uh, although he's a goofy guy who's willing to put booze into popsicles and, and whatnot. <laughs> um, boy, it's it's going to be challenging over here, um, but you know Americans are always looking for the new hot spirit to make cocktails with. And if the cocktail revolution kind of started with bourbon and rye, and eventually went to mezcal and agave drinks, and gin has always been hot here, and amaro is probably the hottest thing to work with now. I think it's time could come. I don't know if it will. Um, when we speak of scotch, of course, unlike a lot of those other things, you know, what do we exactly mean, you know, Lafroig tastes a lot different from Macallan. Right. So you, you can't just make a cocktail and say two ounces of scotch. Well, two ounces of what scotch, you know? Um, then again, you know, one of the first hot modern cocktails was the penicillin, which is a scotch cocktail. And it remains one of the hottest cocktails of the last 20 years, certainly in its creation. So I think Americans do love smoke. We love barbecue. I, I, I think you know, a line of kind of Isla cocktails, smoky cocktails. I could see it happening. Mezcal, of course, got hot because of the smoke too, I think. I, I don't know if it'll ever be the end cocktail. I don't know if you'll ever go to a bar in New York City and there's, you know, seven scotch cocktails on the menu, but could happen. Maybe Ian, maybe the one who might change that. He might break the code. <laughs> well, Ian is a genius. You are right. And uh, I, he's so far ahead of the game, I can't even predict what, He's going to do. I just hope. I just hope he messages me and says, "Here's something crazy I'm doing. Let's write a story on it." Exactly. I mean, he he's like a innovator. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to write a book with him. I would. Well, I well, think you we right should now. talk about that. All right. So speaking of innovator and innovation, so we call our podcast "Hospitality Forward" because we truly believe that our industry will come back even stronger when time comes. So in your opinion, uh, Aaron, so what innovation are you seeing that you think bar should adopt to move our hospitality forward? Yeah, I mean, obviously the pandemic's been awful, but during terrible times, innovation naturally happens. And I obviously haven't been to any other cities in America or the world during the pandemic, but New Yorkers are the quickest to innovate of anyone, you know, quickly coming up with outdoor dining and, and turning, you know, you're seeing like a Mario Margo turn into both a both a, a grocery for cocktails and a high-end tasting menu bar, which I think is is wonderful. You're seeing uh, batched cocktails and and can canned cocktails from the bars. I don't know if this will carry over. I think it's going to exist for a long time. People are loving our outdoor dining and drinking in New York. It's it's wonderful and beautiful to walk down the street. And instead of seeing, you know, street cleaners and, and dirty cars, you're seeing beautiful, you know, flower displays and and just people having a great time outside. And hopefully it doesn't get too cold. But I think New Yorkers will figure out a way that we'll be drinking outside in December or January, if possible, because we're going to have to. Mm -hmm. yes. um, <laughs> 
I don't know. I, I love how easy it is to get alcohol these days. That makes me sound like an alcoholic, but I love, you know, my favorite coffee shop here in, in Brooklyn by my house is called Krupa. Um, and I go in to get my coffee and the cooler beside, uh, beside where you get your coffee doesn't just have orange juice and seltzer. It also has bottled cocktails they've made that look delicious. So it's hard not to grab one of those to go as well. Uh, so I hope that I hope the ease of getting drinks to customers is not something that's going to end with the pandemic. Uh, during the summer, I loved walking around on a hot day and grabbing a frozen cocktail out the window at a bar and walking on to the next place. You could almost do walking bar crawls without ever going inside. So that that was a real blast. Um, and I hope all all of these will will continue. Bars should be allowed to make money any way they legally can. Agreed. So it's been so great speaking with you, Aaron, and um, hope that we can see you very soon. But in the meantime, where can our listeners find you? Well, they can they can probably find me stalking them on weird Facebook groups and, and, <laughs> and TikTok. But if they want to formally find me, I'm Aaron Goldfarb on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And I don't tweet a lot because I don't want to get in trouble with anyone and I don't Instagram a ton and it's mostly pictures of what I'm drinking and what my children are doing but I love for anyone to reach out to me as long as they don't send me 11 emails in a row like that one from this <laughs> company <laughs> worse to the wise great thanks so much Aaron and again we'll see you very soon and share a cocktail in person. in person yeah I would love to looking forward to it looking forward to it thanks guys all right thank you so much thanks see you again soon. bye bye bye, bye. That was quite a chat. Now you know what Aaron covers. Please feel free to pitch him with your interesting stories. Just remember not to follow up 11 times. Before we announce next week's media guest, we'd like to share our weekly HLC Innovation Report from our agency, Hanalee Communications. It spotlights five game changers, fearless leaders, and exciting trends that are moving hospitality forward. Let's get started. Number one what we're reading this week. Our agency celebrates book authors we admire through our hashtag AskTheAuthor series. This week, we're reading On the Road with Flavor Forays, an insider's tour of four of America's hottest food cities, Austin, Charleston, Portland, New Orleans, by Barbara Mathias and Beverly Stephen. Check out at HLC Book Media on Instagram for our interview on how Barbara, Beverly, and Kindle Direct Publishing brought their book to life. Number two, who we are honoring this week. Cha McCoy, a global sommelier and wine authority who joined Cherry Bomb as beverage director and is the force behind Cherry Bomb drinks. Each week, we celebrate pioneering women via our digital channels. So check out hanalicommunications.com for over 250 women's Words of a Wisdom. Number three, what we're celebrating this week. Double Chicken Please, a new bar on the Lower East Side by two alums of the world's 50 best bars that serves complex, multi-layered cocktails on tap. The bar is the brainchild of Jian Chan and Fei Chen, who explore the concept of hacking design, where cocktails and food are deconstructed, redefined, and rebuilt in inventive ways. Number four, what podcast we are listening to 
this week. Bartender at Large, we have always enjoyed this award-winning podcast hosted by the one and only Eric Kestra. We loved his recent interview of Mark Samson of the World 50 Best Bars and the dynamic trio of Augustino Perone, Giorgio Bargiani, and Maura Milia of Connacht Bar in London, which took the number one spot this year. So please give it a listen. It's a fascinating episode. Number five, who's inspiring us this week? John DeBerry, founder of the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for hospitality workers. John has been working nonstop to help those in the industry impacted by the pandemic through its COVID-19 relief fund. Stay tuned for next week's Innovation Report. We have a lot of exciting media guests in the pipeline as well. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And please leave a review and tell your friends and colleagues. In our next episode, we chat with Kristen Beeler, a 20-year industry veteran and editor-in-chief of 750 Daily and Beverage Media, an industry bible. Tune in to listen to this thoughtful editor and writer and learn how to tell your story in the most compelling way. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.